This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. The following podcast contains a bit of explicit material, but much, much more that is not explicit, just as a percentage. It's Tuesday, April 7th, 2018. From Slate, it's The Gist. I'm Mike Pesca. Daniel Dale, my favorite surf rock pioneer. No, the indispensable Toronto Star reporter. The fact checker to the stars, or really one star. The president looked into Donald Trump's recent claim about how good steel production was going. Here he is in a meeting last week with pastors. The dumping is stopping and the steel mills are opening. United States Steel just announced another two plants. Mm -hmm. Uh, They're up to eight. Up to eight. As Dale notes, Trump lied in June when he said that U.S. Steel was opening six plants, and then he made it seven, and then talking about that exchange we just heard, he noted it's now up to eight. The truth, U.S. Steel is restarting blast furnaces in one plant, two blast furnaces, one plant. Now, there is even more scandalous Steel news out there, and I wish everyone knew about this. But what the administration, as uh, headed by steel magnate, really, Wilbur Ross, is doing is it's allowing two huge steel companies, including U.S. Steel and Nucor, to essentially have veto power over which other U.S. companies get exemptions. So how it works is this. Your company, you rely on uh, the, the importing of steel for a certain part. You apply and you say, I don't want to have to pay the tariff on this. It's essential to our business. The only place we could get it. And what the administration is doing is allowing these two giant companies, which, by the way, employ a lot of former administration officials and have given money to people within the administration, they get to review it and they get to say, no, don't give them the the exemption. And they could either do this on the basis of, oh, yeah, we make the part or we could make the part. Within two weeks, we could ramp up production to make the part. Over 1,600 tariff exemptions have been objected to by U.S. Steel and Nucor. And of those around 1,600, guess how many were upheld? How many times that uh, the administration agreed with U.S. Steel and Nucor and rejected the exemption? All of them, every single one. But I just want to go back again to just brazenly lying about the plant openings. And I want to ask myself, is is there really any other way? Can we even remember a time when such a thing couldn't happen, that the president could just lie and up his lie and up his lie and no one would intercede? And yeah, as recently as 2012, a really similar thing happened. Paul Ryan gave a speech at the Republican National Convention. He wasn't talking literally about a steel factory, but he was talking about a car plant and a similar idea, factory closing, factory opening. And uh, here's what he said. A lot of guys I went to high school with worked at that GM plant. Right there at that plant, candidate Obama said, I believe that if our government is there to support you, this plant will be here for another hundred years. That's what he said in 2008. Well, as it turned out, that plant didn't last another year. It is locked up and empty to this day. 
And that's how it is in so many towns where the recovery that was promised is nowhere in sight. Okay, immediately that fact was checked. And sites like PolitiFact and the Washington Post clearly demonstrated it was an inaccurate claim because that GM plant closed before Obama even took office. And so I think the next day, Paul Ryan, still at the Republican National Convention, we're going to play some tape from CNN. Wolf Blitzer interviewed about him, said, do you want a retraction on that? Because obviously everyone's shown that you were misleading the people. You'll hear some sound in the background because it's one of those political convention things music's playing but you know here's the blitzer and ryan back and forth that's right but they announced that plant was shutting down in june uh, of 2008 that was during the bush administration it's, it's still idle the point is this is a story of the obama economy a man running for president in 2008 making all these grand promises and then none of them occurring he got elected he put his policies in place and the plant still shut down my friends where I went to high school but with, that was a decision working General there. Motors made. I'm not saying it was his decision. I'm saying he came and made these promises, makes these commitments, sells people on the notion that he's going to do all these great achievements, and then none of them occur. So look, it wasn't a retraction, but Paul Ryan was caught in the lie. He was essentially made to answer for the lie. Everyone who was paying attention, which was most people, knew that he lied. This is more or less how things are supposed to go. Trump does not even make the effort to do any of what we just heard. He also never sits for an unfriendly interview, so that's why we never get, you know, halfway decent questions about, you said this thing that was wrong, do you want to say it differently? And no one seems to care. He dominates the ether so much in so many truly appalling ways that we can't even do the basic calling to account for all the runaway lies. We try, Dale tries, fact checkers try, I'm trying to do it on my show, but we can't do it. It's just a tangible example of telling you something that you know that he's getting away with it with a specific example that you should have known, but likely do not. On the show today, I spiel about another Trump spasm, my research into how and who the president calls stupid. But first, he was the New York Times Cairo correspondent during the Arab Spring and the fall of Mubarak and Morsi. David Kirkpatrick is in studio. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com system. For years, the United States' most important ally, indeed the center of the Arab world, was the country of Egypt. The United States gave so much money to Egypt, propping up a dictator, really, and then it all came crashing down in the Arab Spring. And the unwinding of that is the subject of my guest David Kirkpatrick's new book, Into the Hands of the Soldiers, Freedom and Chaos in Egypt and the Middle East. He is a Sahafi which is to say journalist for the New York Times, and he was Cairo Bureau Chief from 2011 to 2015. Thanks for coming on, David. It's my pleasure. So let me start with a really easy one, a softball, and then we'll uh, go from there. Egypt can either be an actual democracy or a U.S. ally, but it can't be both. True or false? Totally false. 
I see no contradiction there whatsoever. I mean, we have plenty of allies that are democracies. Mm-hmm. What have they ever done for us? No, but what I, but what I mean is there is a choice in the United States, as you know, and you always talk about the misperceptions of the Arab world, but even within the Obama administration, sort of a choice between idealism and real politic. Do we choose to back the dictator who allies with the United States or do we, as the United States, throw in with the forces of democracy, even if that might mean, you know, countenancing some elements of the Muslim Brotherhood? You know, I think baked into your question, actually, is a a false dichotomy. Or let me put it another way. Let me turn the dichotomy around. I mean, you can look at Egypt, which today is a mess. For sure, it's a mess. Everyone agrees it's a mess. And you can say, the problem is the Egyptians. Mm -hmm. There's just something wrong with the Egyptians. Or you can say, the problem is their government. Their government and institutions are non-functional. The autocracy in Egypt doesn't work. That's why it collapsed in 2011. And that's why so many Egyptians tried so hard for so long to build a better government. In fact, I think that's your only choice unless you're going to say there's just something wrong with Egyptians. Well, I definitely don't think that there's anything inherent in the nature of, you know, one of the world's, the descendants of uh, the, the world's first great society. But my question is, when you have an oppressive regime and the only outlet for anything that opposes the regime is often radical Islam, like the Muslim Brotherhood, like Wahhabism in Saudi Arabia, what options do you have as the United States? We back the oppressors and it doesn't seem like anyone who is against the oppressor is anything like a Jeffersonian Democrat. Well, Jefferson was an American, mm-hmm. so you wouldn't expect to find an and actual- he invite, and, and he had iftar- it's true. He yes. did have FDR at the White House. But I guess w- w- what I would like to suggest is that uh, political Islam is not a unitary thing. When you talk to political Islamists close up, you find that they don't agree on very much and that their movement is diverse, that they're constantly arguing among themselves, and that it's changed over time. So you shouldn't just posit it as a coherent thing and a force that is going to change a culture or a people. I mean, you you are right. There was a tension in the Obama administration between those who said, you know, let's take a chance and try to build a better relationship, a different relationship with people in the Arab world and, and Egypt and others who said, look, let's bet on our traditional allies. Yes, they're autocrats. Yes, they're authoritarians. They're the people we know. They've kept stability. Why take a chance? And that was a live debate in the Obama administration. And I think the president in his heart of hearts probably lead towards taking a chance and trying to build a new relationship. Under the current regime, under Trump, clearly all our eggs are betting on authoritarians and presuming that all Islamists are the same, that anybody who calls themselves an Islamist in any way is tantamount to Al-Qaeda. And I think one of the things that you learn in my book is that that is a change that began with the coup in Egypt. The focal point of my book is not the uprising in 2011, which was great, but what we're living with today is the consequences of the coup that took place in 2013, and that's what I'm here to talk about. Right. So let's start, though, when you first get to Cairo, 2011. What's it like walking through the streets? Well, this is going to sound strange, but in terms of the atmospherics, it reminded me of Cuba. Yeah. It reminded me of Havana. It was a place that was once grand, and that grandeur is still discernible, but underneath a thick, thick coat of dust and decay. Yeah. And the, the the specialness to me of the late Mubarak period was it was obviously falling apart. You could see everywhere that the institutions of the government were at war with each other, that government officials would roll their eyes about their own president to me, a foreign journalist who had just gotten off the plane. Everybody knew that it was about to change, that it was unsustainable. And yet it was this sort of weirdly open police state. You know, it was clearly a police state, but the government was so 
cynical, so unafraid to use force to keep people down that they would they they'd gotten to the point where they would let people say things on television. So you could you had critical of them even. So you had a kind of open contempt for the government combined with a naked repression. From an American perspective, how quick on its feet was the American administration? How important was that? I mean, we think it defined so much uh, about Egypt, how the Obama administration reacted. Did it? In my book, I pay a lot of attention to the role of the American government. And that's partly because I'm an American and I care about where my tax dollars go. Right. And I think it was important in terms of the direction of Egypt. How important is something that we'll never know? Mm -hmm. uh, Because I think when, if you look at the critical moments in 2011 when Mubarak left, the fact of the matter is, as much as the Obama administration later wanted to say, we stood with the people, they didn't really break with Mubarak until Mubarak was already toast. And then when you flash forward to the next decisive moment, the coup in 2013 that re- removed uh, President Mohamed Morsi, the, uh, the Obama administration was definitely saying in its public statements and its top line messages, don't do a coup. We want the process of democracy to continue. But at the same time, I think if you look closely, beneath the surface, there were what amounts to winks and nods. Mm -hmm. Certainly after the military takeover happened, a lot of people in the American government welcomed it. I have to believe that was known by the Egyptian military before they removed Morsi. So to your initial question, did the American government play a role? I don't think we'll ever know what would have happened had the American government spoken with one voice, either in favor of autocracy or against it. Yeah. In reading your book, I had this thought that wasn't actually articulated in the book, but it's that for all the debate about the kinds of leaders that each of these people were, Mubarak and Morsi and Sisi, to me, a little bit maybe underexplored was the idea of just of execution. So Nasser was seems to me just a bad technocrat and Mubarak seemed to run a repressive state with not the most cutting edge methods. And what I mean by that is, you know, I have a colleague who wrote a book about the new dictators and they use things like Putin will arrest pussy riot and as sort of a show trial, send them to jail and the symbolism will be clear, but he won't have to run a system of gulags, right? Whereas in Egypt, Mubarak just had runaway thugs and they weren't particularly strategic about it. I mean, as insensitive as this may be, it just seems like, in terms of being an effective dictator, he was an ineffective dictator. You and know, so I, were some people before him. I think you're being too harsh on Nasser and and and, and too kind to Mubarak. Okay. I mean, in a way, I mean, Nasser. Let's you know, he modernized Egypt. He modernized and urban and urbanized Egypt, and he helped. He really helped vault it ahead in many ways. I mean, let's give the guy his due. And he was he was a new leader for the Arab world. He restored a kind of confidence and pride of the Arab world. And he tried, he was a big part of the non-aligned movement. So his his achievements were, he, he took over the Suez Canal, he, he achieved independence. So his achievements, independence from Britain, his achievements are not insignificant. And I can see why many Egyptians today feel a real nostalgia for the Nasser era as a kind of glory days for their right. country. On the other hand, Mubarak, uh, in the in the late Mubarak period, Egypt was growing pretty fast. I mean, he, you know, it was a long time when he was in power. But by the end, he had taken a lot of uh, American economic advice. He was loosening up the state controls on the economy. That was producing dividends in terms of economic growth. And there was a greater degree of political participation in the parliament than Egyptians had seen before. You know, the the cliche is that when the progress in, in economics and in freedom 
goes, goes, goes up, 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 and then takes a downturn. That's when you have a revolution. Right. And that's very much what happened in Egypt. I mean, things have been going pretty good yeah. in terms of freedom and in terms of the economy before 2010. And then the economy took a ta- downturn at the same time as Mubarak tried to pull in the reins, possibly to pass power to his son. Uh, and that's when things blew up. And tell me about what you know of Sisi, what's your read on him, what are his personal uh, characteristics that might help him or hurt him in this job? Well, unlike Morsi, I've never had a chance to interview Sisi face-to-face, but the the story of Sisi, to my mind, is a story of change. You know, when uh, he first was on the scene, he would always appear in in, uh, TV footage and in pictures walking behind Morsi with his head kind of stooped, with his hands between his legs, Mm -hmm. sitting almost deferentially. And he let it be known to American officials and also to his Egyptian confidants, some of whom talked to me, that he was perfectly happy to see a Muslim brother as president of Egypt. I mean, he seemed to be really ready to defer to Morsi. Uh, Over time, that changed, of course, and he removed him. And after he removed him, Sisi began to rewrite his own history. He would start saying to the Americans, you know, as I've always told you, you could never let a Muslim brother take power. They're a dangerous group. And, you know, it was chaos or me. And over time, you know, he starts talking about himself in the third person, and he becomes more and more grandiose. And now we're into a sort of a third turn where he's both grandiose and nervous. You know, he is uh, removing again and again security officials who are close to him and might be threatening him. He's arresting anybody who even begins to look the slightest bit like a viable political rival. He he seems almost to have a, a... little bit of a glass jaw. He says things in speeches that sound nervous, like, please, you must listen only to me. I'm the only one you can trust. You know, that kind of thing. Uh, so he's um, he's changing over time. And that too, I think we're not going to, we haven't seen the end of it. Well, the leader of the world's only superpower says similar things as well. I'm the only way you could trust. Don't believe anything else you hear or read. This might be, this might be a characteristic of a certain type of personality. Those two do seem to get along well. They do. It seems just from a quality of life standpoint that there are some, I mean, I, I'm, I guess I mostly am basing this on reporting in the New York Times, but it seems like there are some countries that are chaotic and polluted and there's just a, a pall on them. And I'd love to visit Cairo, but I don't know if I'd want to live there. I mean, what's it really like as a place to live? Is it navigable? Does it seem like there's a lot of hope there? Right now, it's in a pretty depressed period. Uh, I mean, the economy is having real troubles. There's been a, a steep devaluation of the currency. Uh, and, you know, I haven't been there in about a year, but last time I was there, people were pretty down. Uh, that said, it's an extremely hospitable city. I mean, I, I think back to those 30 months between uh, the, the fall of Mubarak and the rise of Sisi. There were times then, long stretches, when the police effectively vanished, they just stopped doing their job. And amazingly enough, the city was okay. Yeah. You know, over a time, the public security began to deteriorate, but they did remarkably well. You know, neighbors looking out for neighbors. Uh, Egypt did much better, I think, than we could expect New York or Washington to do. Into the Hands of the Soldiers, Freedom and Chaos in Egypt and the Middle East is the book. David D. Kirkpatrick of the New York Times wrote it and lived it. Thank you, David. My pleasure. And now the spiel. 
The other day I was on MSNBC, as happens from time to time. In fact, 9 a.m. tomorrow, I'll be on again. And the topic for discussion was Donald Trump's stupid tweet about Don Lemon and LeBron James being stupid. To recap, LeBron James made, I think, what was a fairly uncontroversial statement, saying that Donald Trump was being divisive by attacking athletes, and that was especially unfair, as James saw it, because athletics was the very thing that made him, LeBron James, the greatest basketball player of his generation, made him feel united with his fellow citizen. First time he met white people, he said, was through basketball. So James speaks some truth, some fairly temperate truth. Trump goes on a classic egocentric tantrum, smears any and all who would dare fault him for things that he clearly has done. Trump's attack is so clearly indefensible that the next day, the first lady, unprompted, puts out her own statement saying she thinks LeBron James' charitable work is great and she'd love to visit his school. So what's left to say? What's left for me to say to an interested audience? I could uh, talk about how terrible LeBron is. That's one way to do it. That's one vector of communication just to, you thought it was bad. It's so bad. It's really bad. It's so terrible. That's true. There's nothing unterrible about it, but I thought I would add some, I don't know, information. So what I like to do when I have a topic like this is to think about, well, what does the audience need? What might the audience not be hearing? So I thought of two things. One was there was some chatter, there was some thought that perhaps this could be another winning issue for Donald Trump, like picking a fight with the NFL players over the national anthem was a winning issue. But I came to a different conclusion. I thought about it. And I do not think that there's any way this spat will help him with anyone except his base, which tautology is by definition the supporters who support him most. And so I thought I'd point that out and I'd contrast it with the national anthem saying the national anthem controversy was a little bit different because it was ostensibly about the flag. It was only attacking the athletes for this action of not supporting the flag and the people who support Donald Trump. Remember, we're talking about the people who support Donald Trump could in their minds make that cognitive leap. Oh, we're not really beating up on black athletes, even if they cared if they were. What we're doing is defending the flag. I know Donald Trump doesn't deal in dog whistles, but there is something to be able to rally people based on an ideal, like supporting the flag, versus the idea that this particular black person is stupid. Uh, The first works more for his rabid base. So I wanted to point that out, and I did. The second aspect to the uh, Don Lemon LeBron tweet that Donald Trump issued was, and something I wanted to lick look into was how most interviewers were framing it. I'll play CNN's Anderson Cooper as an example. What he did say and what he has said before about Congresswoman Waters and and is one of the oldest kind of racist tropes, um, you know, racist attacks on African-Americans in in this country, questioning the the intelligence uh, of it. It was an obsession among racists, you know, for for centuries. Of course, it's true. Deriding African-Americans for intellectual failings has a long, sad history among eugenicists and racists and white supremacists. Of course it does. But what I wanted to do was research Trump's history of this. Wanted to have the actual facts. So I looked up 
Uh, the databases that are out there, they have lists of all the insulting tweets that Trump has ever tweeted while president. And I search for terms like IQ and dumb and dummy and stupid and intelligent and unintelligent. And then I also looked up a bunch of his tweets from before he ran. And what I found is he uses this insult frequently against a wide variety of people. So I was on MSNBC and the other panelists mentioned that idea that this is a specifically racist attack against black people. And he seems to say this against Maxine Waters and Don Lemon and LeBron James and African-Americans. And then it was my turn. And here's what I said. But I went back. He very frequently criticizes the intelligence of all sorts of people. He's done it about Chris Matthews. He's done it about Robert De Niro. He called Bill Moyers a dummy. I could have added Jon Stewart. Uh, He said it about his own staff. He said it about Brian Williams and Mika Brzezinski. I don't know. There's a lot of MSNBC in there, right? So that's what I did say. You heard what I said. It's what I wanted to say. I don't think it dealt too much in subjectivity. You could always claim that whenever someone gives something context that's inherent subjective. What is the context that you give it? But if anything, the context I was trying to give it was to make clear, and I do think I made it clear, was to make clear, now that doesn't mean he's not racist. In fact, you heard me say that. In fact, I think he is racist. And I even offered a racist or racially based explanation for why he would be picking on black people for their intelligence. You know, to flesh this out a little bit more here, there are plenty of white people in sports who criticize and attack him. Uh, There are three prominent NBA coaches, Steve Kerr, Greg Popovich, Stan Van Gundy, Van Gundy recently fired, who have really ripped into Trump and he never seems to get down in the mud with them like he tries to drag Steph Curry and those NFL athletes and LeBron James down into the mud with him. Now on Twitter, a few people heard what I said on MSNBC and they did not see the value of my comments. At Pescami, watching you on at MSNBC, please stop giving at real Donald Trump a pass on his rampant racism. Once more, let me play this one part of what I said. While he may be racist, and in my opinion, he is. And this Twitter user, actual handle, Trump hates USA. That's H-8-S-U-S-A. Uh, she continued, I think it's she by her avatar. If you believe he's not a racist, you're a fool and clearly have not been informed of his racist pass. So answering the charge that I gave Trump a pass on his racism, I simply wrote back, I certainly did not. To which at Cubs fan here jumped in by saying, you absolutely did, Mike. It was pretty disgusting. Maybe go back and watch the tape again. It was appalling. Now, oh, people on Twitter say a lot of things, and it's not going to knock me off my stride. But this is what I found. I have found that sometimes engagement, a little bit of an olive branch, me explaining what I meant or getting into more detail, maybe a multi-threaded tweet, not too multi-threaded, that gets old soon. But, you know, maybe a little bit more explanation goes a long way. I've done this in the past. I've engaged with people who seem to be mad at me on Twitter, especially if it's a person who I recognize, who is a fan of the gist or someone who at least follows me. And often I get a response that's gratifying. You know, the person cools down a little bit. The person says, well, thanks for reaching out. The person might say, I guess I was reacting to X, but now I'm hearing you say Y. And I might say, you know what? Your reaction to X was justified. I just wanted to point out why. Sometimes good things happen. It is an inefficient way to communicate, especially for someone who goes on TV or has a podcast with hundreds or tens of thousands of listeners. But I just think it's good form. If you have a commitment to discourse, which I think I do, why not do it on a one-to-one basis on Twitter? Sometimes it works. And here is what I wrote to uh, the Cubs fan. I've heard it asserted 
that he attacks many people for many things, but reserves comments about intelligence for African-Americans. So I actually researched that claim. Here are some of my sources linked to CNN article, Donald Trump's IQ obsession in 22 quotes, link to the Times database of the 487 people, places, and things Donald Trump has insulted on Twitter. Link to USA Today article, loser, lightweight, moron, or dummy, Donald Trump's insult targets. So that's me showing my work so they could look at it and say, oh, I see where he gets his facts from. And then I continued. Again, I told you it was multi-threaded. I wrote to this guy. And here is why I did that. If the forces of fact are an existential battle with the forces of whatever Trump defines as reality, I think it's better to be on the side of demonstrable and provable. If truth and journalism will win the day, I say we should adhere to journalistic rigor and say what we can prove. So that's why I researched the claims, said what I found, and put into the context of not excusing what seems to be his racism. That's what I wrote to the guy. That's what I'm saying to you here. I could go into more detail here because tweets are only 280 characters, but you get what I'm saying, right? Let him be the lack of evidence guy and lets us be the evidence people. And I really have no agenda other than looking into a claim and reporting what I found. The only agenda was, I think, a journalistic one. And having found some facts, I put the facts out there. Now, I would like to report that this careful, methodical, non-accusatory explanation of my methods and motivations won over my online critic. I'd like to report that, but I cannot. After I listed a dozen people who are an African-American, whose intellect Donald Trump has insulted, Cubs fan here responded, quote, the fact that he reserves comments on intelligence for African-Americans doesn't tell you anything? This is racism, plain and simple, Mike. If you can't put two and two together and understand that, you seriously need to do some more research on your own understanding of racism. All right, that tells me all I need to know about this specific interaction. I shan't continue on, for I am not a low IQ or low EQ individual. I'm picking up on the clues. Remember when I talked about the need for evidence and how much I like evidence? That said, I figured out a long time ago that evidence rarely convinces people. I think how it works is that people who are convinced seek out evidence that supports their convictions. That's fine. I'm still going to provide the evidence. Let me now end with a quote from the very guest that Anderson Cooper was interviewing during the clip I played at the top of the show, Dr. Cornell West. So that, yes, Paris, it's true. He's an equal opportunity gangster across the board. Meaning this might be the only time that Donald Trump qualified for EEOC certification during his lifetime. That's it for today's show. Producer Daniel Schrader has personally opened nine foundries and three smelters during the production of this show. Steve Lichtai is the executive producer of Slate Podcasts, and he is the founder of Lichtai Ironworks, which is up to 18 plants. No, wait, 19. Oh, my God, they've moved past 20. The gist. Over the weekend, I opened a sprawling loom works, and I use the loom there to create a smaller loom which will in turn be used to create a series of smaller and smaller looms until the last one will be a loom whose only function will be to weave a tea cozy with the word madam on it. And thanks for listening. 